Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Well, look who came crawling the fuck back. (laughs) Yes, it's me, Will. Fever dreams, listeners. Do you remember the sound of Will's voice? (laughs) I'll let you finish, Will. But does our audience even remember who this fucking guy is? I was going to say, I went out to South Dakota for Mike Lindell's cyber symposium. I thought he had some very compelling information, and I've been digging through it ever since. I've come up for breath now, and I'm back on the pod. Where were you in South Dakota? So I was not actually, but yeah, I mean, so I, I was on leave. I think the pod did a did a great job in my in my absence, and uh, you know, happy to be back. You know, I will say though, I do think I, I understand some listeners were confused about whether I was off the pod for good or if I had been really fired or what have you. I did say, Swin, just tell people I'm off for a month, and I think maybe you got a little elaborate with it. No, I told them the truth and <laughs> just ditched your attempts for any cover up of why you were gone. <laughs> and now so, you're yeah, trying to so, pin the blame on me. <laughs> so yeah, so uh but yeah, no, yeah, it's uh it's good to be back on the pod and I hope um you know you'll you'll forgive me someday for uh for taking a little break. Okay, I'm assuming a lot of our listeners are Ally McBeal fans, as I was when I was a kid. Uh, Do you remember how Robert Downey Jr. used to be a star on Ally McBeal, but then he started to run into, I think, a bunch of legal and police-related troubles back when he was in his more troubled celebrity phase, and then he came back later on, as you're doing right now. And the process of reintegration didn't really work. This is why people love the pod. I mean, they they love the topical references. (laughs) Anyway, Ali McBeal aside, Will, really happy to have you back. Fill my brain with some brain poison. Yeah, sure. So while I was gone, I had a lot of time to be on the internet in much the same way I would have if I was here. Okay, but before you get into that, it kind of impressed me how in the time that you were gone, the ivermectin craze really shot into turbo drive and just you weren't here to comment on any of it what do you think about it do you think we're being very nasty unfair to horse pace this is interesting i feel like we're in sort of like the fifth cycle about ivermectin particularly among the extremely online where it's like at first it was horse paste and now it's like don't be mean about the horse paste it's not always horse paste that kind of stuff i do think it's really been interesting watching from the sidelines i mean the the ivermectin thing was cooking for a while even before ivermectin mania really hit the internet i think for whatever reason you know sometimes something really just 
captures the popular imagination and both uh, among the people who are into it and the people who are not. I think the most interesting thing we're into now is the anti-anti-ivermectin crew who sort of don't make fun of the rural folk ways of people who consume pharmaceuticals with like a smiling sheep on the cover. Which is just a huge tell because they are projecting what they think about the people who they believe are in what they would describe as flyover country. They're telling on themselves by saying that. (laughs) I don't think it's a condescending stance to say that I don't think any human Americans should be consuming food meant for pharmaceuticals meant for horses or sheep. I mean, I think that's pretty reasonable, but apparently that's like a very highfalutin stance. Right. Like third generation farmers know that they probably know that better than you. Yeah, these guys aren't just, you go out in Iowa, they aren't just eating hay. (laughs) I guess that's my perspective on it. You know, I'm also intrigued to see what's next because, you know, obviously we had hydroxychloroquine and then that was replaced by ivermectin. And I think that this cycle is going to continue at least as long as the pandemic is bubbling, that there's going to be a third thing around the corner. So I'm intrigued to see what, what kind of zany new pharmaceutical lies ahead for us. While you were away on leave, I already placed my bets on cat food. Wet cat food, not not dry cat. Well, right. I mean, the vet does always tell you to use wet cat food. They say it's better for the cat. So so I think that could be great. Okay. And while you were off, you continued to rot your brain in new and novel ways, including by taking a deep dive into the lifestyles of the rich and the famous in this particular case of the gateway and the pundit. Explain to our listeners why this so enraptured you. There's an interesting thing going on here. So Jim Hoft of the Gateway Pundit is, I think, one of the most intriguing right-wing figures out there because his website is hugely influential on the right. Swin, a couple podcasts ago, was talking about Donald Trump reading the Gateway Pundit. And yet it is like the most unreadable website out there. It looks like a blog spot from 2007. Jim Hoft was recently claiming he gets more viewers or as many viewers as Greg Gutfeld. So, I mean, it, it is a hugely influential site. This <laughs> Really shooting for the stars here. This guy is, he's a very like idiosyncratic character. He's been called by his critics, the dying pundit because he has so many ailments. He's operating out of St. Louis, which is not really like thought of as like a main hub of media, even right-wing media, because everyone lives in Nashville now. But but he's kind of a very odd character. So anyways, and very mysterious despite his influence. So this French TV channel just last week released a documentary on that focuses heavily on him. And I had to like screw with a VPN to go watch it and stuff. But this is my devotion to the podcast. So the I watched this thing. And we got some pictures here in the doc, and I realize podcasting is is a visual medium. So this is a – the pictures of his mansion. I mean, this is a guy who writes a blog that is just filled with hoaxes. This is the guy who most famously, I think to many, claimed that Antifa super soldiers were preparing to behead white parents – couple years back on they were just awaiting the order and this guy's blog is just filled with garbage i thought he based that reporting on a joke tweet by like a left-wing comedian account well yeah he took it seriously and he said oh man the antifa super soldiers are coming i mean this guy's blog is filled with garbage but it also in many ways sort of sets the agenda for i don't know a quarter to a third of the right-wing internet okay before we get in to the majesty of his mansion that's in this france 2 documentary i just have to elaborate a little bit on something you flicked at earlier. He's not just someone who's hugely influential on the right. He is someone who Donald Trump, while he was president in his final days in office, waging his anti-democratic crusade, 
He was someone where Donald Trump was reading printouts of the Gateway Pundit website in the Oval Office, flinging them around, handing them to close aides and telling them, we need to do something about the fraud that's documented on this really good August website. And here, find out more about this, do something about this, get the DOJ on it, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously there is a massive influence that Jim Hoffman, the Gateway Pundit has, including for who once used to be the most powerful person on the face of the planet. But at the same time, the website is just, we're not being snobs here. Just log on to it. It's the most atrocious looking website that isn't even trying. They are not even trying to pull off good hoaxes here with their content. It makes me feel very sorry for right-wing and MAGA grifters who never end up getting like at least 900,000 Twitter followers at bare minimum and then getting like a million YouTube subscribers or whatever. It makes me feel really sorry for the people who can't do that instantly because if this guy can amass this amount of profit and clout via just not even looking like he's trying, And if you can't replicate that, I'm not sure what hope there is for you in any function of society or profession. (laughs) Right. So this is sort of the guy who's playing Trump's brain like a xylophone, you know, I mean, it's like boom, boom, boom. And so whatever he does gets out there. So this documentary takes us inside Jim Hoff's mansion, which I would describe as like TGI Friday's Versailles or something (laughs) like the French people. You know, I don't speak French, but it seems like the French were kind of like kind of shocked with how like wannabe French it is. There's like a suit of armor guy of a legionnaire. There's like a lot of just kind of really stuff that you might see in a museum. And then there's also just like huge printouts that say like gateway pundit on the wall. So what also interested me about this documentary was, first of all, Jim Hoff is clearly making a ton of money from this very low effort hoax thing. And so, but also this is the latest in a series of right wing characters in the United States getting totally wrecked by foreign reporters. And I think, (laughs) I don't know if the theory here is that like, if you're in Australia or France that like you don't have Google because like, they're sort of like, well, I'll simply portray myself as this very upstanding journalist. And then someone's like, well, it kind of seems like you lie all the time. And the guy's like, what the hell? How'd you find that out? No French reporters know how to read English. He really is. So most recently, the other example here is Sidney Powell was interviewed by, and we can include a clip here. You said that Smartmatic owns Dominion. How do you justify such a basic factual error? I'm going to stop this interview. It's wholly inappropriate in the litigation that we're in. But we're not even in the area of great dispute. These are the simple facts of who owns what. No, we're done. I'm sorry. These are facts. When we are in litigation against me personally, I, I understand that, but we're billions. Yes, I understand that these are very serious so, allegations. Thank you very much. But these are also very big. Ba- but it was interviewed by an Australian reporter who said, "So, uh, you know, you say the election was stolen, and she's like, that's absolutely right." And then the guy says, "Well, like, do you have any proof of that? I mean, do you think it's cool to lie?" And then she's like, "This interview is over. This is unbelievable. I mean, just the most basic pushback." Isn't she holding like a pet animal while this is going on? She's not, but she has that demeanor. I mean, she's very like kind of stiff and sort of like. She really just can't. This guy's like, I don't know. It sounds like you're making it up. And she just gets insanely mad. So in this case, Jim Hoft is interviewed by a, this French reporter. And she says, well, like, do you know this picture? She shows him a picture of a guy. And she's like, well, this is a guy, you know, you falsely accused of being involved in Charlottesville in the death there. And Jim Hoft goes, well, I don't know who that is. And it's like, well, Jim Hoft, you're currently being sued by the guy. I think you know who he is. But then he gets insanely mad and says, kiss my ass. 
<laughs> and storms off. Wait, then doesn't he also accuse the reporter of being like a sex maniac or something like that? Yeah, so this is, I mean, you know, number one, Jim Hoft is gay. And so, and the reason I bring this up is because he claims this woman was sent as a Bill Gates honeypot. So, like, to give the listener a, sort of a, a look into my mind. So, often what I get is, I, you know, I read these blogs and stuff, and then suddenly someone will be like, I've been targeted by a Bill Gates honeypot. And this is several months before this documentary comes out. And so, you can kind of tell, like, an interview did not go well, <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, in a few months, we're going to see what this is all about. So back in, I think, July, he posted Bill Gates linked org sends pretty French honeypot to US in effort to take down Gateway Pundit, but she failed miserably and flew back home. So he's claiming that this woman was sent as sort of like a femme fatale. And I will say, but he's openly gay, right? Well, well, she wasn't successful. That's what he said. <laughs> It's also, it's funny because you watch this video and this woman is like the most just like buttoned up or she's like, she has a clipboard and she's like, it it looks like a deposition. She's showing him pictures. She's like, okay, like, it seems like you lie a lot. Like, take a look at this evidence. Yeah, but some people are into that. (laughs) You're right, right. So then he says, maybe next time the globalists will think twice about sending a pretty French honey bot. That's a a typo there (laughs) to take down the gateway pundit. C'est la vie, which I will admit is kind of a funny sign off. This is sort of the... The misadventures of the Gateway Pundit, and and often we follow them on the podcast or we follow them online. It is interesting to see the Gateway Pundit sort of blunder through things uh, on camera. So can we play a clip of the kiss my ass thing? Despite how humorous the Gateway Pundit can be, I think it is still kind of shocking that this guy can be the suburban princeling of St. Louis. When you see with like this guy can buy whatever garbage he wants to decorate his house because he has all this money from just lying constantly online. And so I think it is probably ominous for those of us who care about anything sort of resembling truth or shared reality that that you can just make a blog called The Gateway Pundit and get a bunch of cash. Well, I wish that either of us had anybody in our lives, and I assure you we do not, who loved us as much as Donald Trump loves making Georgia Republican officials' lives hell. It's actually perversely fascinating how much he enjoys doing this. Right. So, I mean, this obviously relates to the fact that he's mad that they wouldn't overturn the election for him. But you've been doing some reporting here and and you've got some new details on how unfun it is to be a Republican figure in Georgia in the age of Trump. Let's get into it. Well, in late 2020, in the earliest days of 2021, our listeners will probably remember that then President Donald Trump was busy waging a multi-front war to try to cling to power and not accept the results of the 2020 presidential election in which he obviously clearly lost. One of the biggest fronts of said war was in Georgia, where Trump and many of his top cronies and allies and senior administration officials kept waging this pressure campaign on senior Georgia officials who happened to be Republicans, some of whom very staunchly pro-Trump Republicans, to basically find these imaginary votes that Donald Trump kept talking about so that they could flip the result in Georgia into Donald Trump's column and try to keep him in power. So in new documents and internal emails that reporter Jose Palieri and I obtained and reported on recently here at the Daily Beast, there was just a deluge of death threats and constant taunting. So these are from angry Trump fans. Yes, yes, that were just flooding these Georgia Republicans' offices 
constantly as Trump was like issuing fatwa after fatwa in public. And some of them are your run of the mill, calling them communists or basically closet Democrats, accusing them of hating democracy in a sort of argumentative jujitsu. But at the same time, as you can imagine, there were numerous violent and graphic threats promising, for instance, to quote, make the Boston bombings look like child's play, end quote. And for this story, through a public records request, Jose received nearly 700 pages of internal communications from the Georgia Secretary of State's office from this specific time period. So you can imagine just how shock full of just like blisteringly violent and angry threats from Trump's fans that the office had to deal with at the time. They, it's already been publicly reported that they had to beef up their security. It wasn't just a case of people whining about a workplace inconvenience. This was obviously some scary stuff for people who were working there. I mean, the thing that's going on here, right, is that the message that I think these emails make clear is that if you're a Republican official and who says, oh, geez, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't overturn the election, like you're going to become the main character that day on right-wing internet and you're going to get your weeks and weeks of harassment. Absolutely. And look, there were many through the looking glass moments of Donald Trump's stewardship of the Republican Party that continue to today. There were almost too many to count. It's just a massive plethora. But one of the most bizarrely glaring ones to me that really made me raise an eyebrow for about an hour and a half was when Trump declared a holy war on these Georgia Republicans because they would not help him cancel democracy in as aggressive a way as he wanted to after the 2020 election. And he started going after Brian Kemp, who became a persona non grata in so much of the Republican Party and the conservative movement for respecting democracy too much and for not being pro-Trump enough. This is one of the top Republicans in the United States who, when you talk about substance and actual policy in terms of agreeing with Donald Trump, being extremely Trumpy, loving Donald Trump, at least up until these moments, and agreeing with so much of Trump and the GOP on what has to happen with like voting restrictions in his state and across the country. He is at the upper echelons of this stuff. But because he wouldn't just ham-fistedly overturn the election results in his state in the dumbest, most autocratic way possible. He became public enemy number one for Donald Trump. And that still lasts to this day, where he keeps talking about how he wants to campaign against uh, Georgia officials like Kemp and Raffensperger and guys like that to try to get them out of office. So tell me more about, I mean, obviously Donald Trump is a vindictive guy going back to his days as Roy Cohn. And he's a guy who comes to get you. You know, he he relishes his grudges. I mean, what did you learn about Donald Trump really enjoying uh, terrorizing these Georgia officials? Well, well, would it shock you to learn that Donald Trump was not particularly empathetic towards the plight and death threat filled lives of these Georgia officials at this particular time? No, that wouldn't surprise me. Good answer. So during this period of time, these Republican officials in Georgia kept complaining and beseeching the president through the TV during public press conferences that this madness needs to stop. We're getting inundated with death threats left and right. We're fearing someone's going to get hurt soon. Can we please bring the temperature down? Now, from a normal brain person, you might think that might inspire a shred of, if not empathy, at least sympathy. Or maybe, okay, maybe I should shut up for a little 
while about it, despite the violence of my emotions at the moment. I talked to a former senior Trump administration official and another person who's very close to Donald Trump, who were saying that during this period, while he was sitting in the Oval Office and in the White House, Trump was being repeatedly briefed on how things were going with Georgia, including the amount of death threats that were just being piled upon these guys. And during that period, Trump kept telling people close to him that it would make sense to him if these guys were exaggerating the kinds of threats that they were being hit with just so they could get more sympathy or whatever. But more often than that, he would accept that this was the level of hate that they were on the receiving end of, and he'd simply mock them. He'd make fun of these officials. He was saying that they were bad people who were getting what they would deserve. And he would praise, quote unquote, my people for just flooding their inboxes and just upping the ante on harassing and defaming these Georgia Republican officials because it brought a smile to Donald Trump's face. He would he would say, well, you know what? These threats would simply stop if these guys did what I wanted them to do. So Trump, as we've reported a lot on this podcast, there's so much about him and his policies that make you think he's watched way too many like B-grade mafia movies that have been pumped out of Hollywood since the 1960s. And he just operates on that terrain. He thinks those are the coolest archetypes in all of cinema and wishes that he could be that. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. For this week's interview, we're incredibly excited to welcome our dear friend, Spencer Ackerman, a Daily Beast contributing editor, an award-winning national security and foreign policy reporter, and author of the must-read Substack newsletter, Forever Wars. Spencer is out now with a new book, courtesy of Penguin Random House, titled Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. It is a maddening and richly reported ride through the last two decades of both Republican and Democratic complicity in shaping our current domestic political derangements while also waging horror and bloodbaths abroad. But the most impressive thing about Spencer is that he also served as a consultant on Armando Iannucci's 2009 satire In the Loop, which is the single best movie ever made about the Iraq invasion and war and is essential viewing for devotees of the Fever Dreams lifestyle. You can follow Spencer at Attackerman on Twitter.com, and you can stay up to date on his latest reporting and essays on Substack at Forever Wars. It goes without saying that if you haven't bought his new book, Reign of Terror, yet, please put this podcast on pause and go out and buy it now. Spencer, welcome to Fever Dreams. How's the book tour going in the era of COVID-19? 
Thank you so much, Swin. That was incredibly sweet of you. It's great to be back with you and Will. It's like being back in the newsroom, only with no aggravation, because I don't have any responsibility anymore. (laughs) As for the book tour? The actual tour is entirely delayed because of Delta. It's a weird thing that now I can talk about. But if you don't like my book, you might still like the historian and now New York Times bestselling author, Mike Duncan, whose excellent podcasts, The History of Rome and Revolutions, are some of the best times on the internet you'll have with history. His book, Hero of Two Worlds, a revival of the Marquis de Lafayette for the 21st century. Mike and I are going to be doing a tour together. We had planned, it's going to be a weird thing, so it should be fun because we don't, we're two middle-aged dads who have been stuck inside for so long. Mike basically wrote a punk rock opera about the French Revolution and I'm playing drums on it. And we decided we would do a tour where we would stop after each of us gives our spiels and we'd play music. And we started booking dates through the South for October. And then Delta happened and we felt like, I don't really want anyone to get sick because I wanted to be like on my like middle-aged music fantasy. How irrationally responsible of you. So we're going to probably pick that up in, we hope the spring, we're going to do that on the West Coast as well as the South. Who knows, maybe if there's actually no more Delta <laughs> or no more Epsilon <laughs> or whatever comes next, we'll be able to actually do this thing. Otherwise, it's going to be like 2025 and we'll be saying, you know, as soon as everyone stops dying from the mega pandemic, we'll be ready to do it. Uh, we'll see you on the road during the Don Jr. administration. I think that's probably for the best. I can't imagine the, the Revolutions podcast club across the country and, you know, someone getting in the pit for some song about Robespierre to catch COVID. (laughs) It can, in fact, be that song specifically because, like, that's the biggest opportunity for pit justice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to get into your new book, I would first like to start by reading a part of page 13 of the most recent New York Times book review. This is when one of their contributors took a whack at Spencer's new book, and the last few sentences of it in particular, I gotta be honest, Spencer, I'm sorry this is at your expense, I have not laughed so hard at a book review, maybe in my entire life, at least for the past decade or two. Okay, here it goes, and I quote, All the contempt only distracts attention from the book's many important points, as it turns Reign of Terror into a left-wing instantiation of both the meanness and the polarization that characterized the Trump era, rather than the refutation of that area that a less vituperative account might have offered. In the end, the book doesn't just fail to provide a clear sense of how the war on terror should have been run, or of how the Biden administration can finally conclude it. Answers that, as the current coinage in Afghanistan shows, are more necessary than ever. Here's the money shot. The book also offers no way out of the vicious, self-perpetuating domestic conflict that our foreign wars helped ignite, a conflict that writing like this may only perpetuate, end quote. Spencer, how do you feel about perpetuating the global war on terror? It was me all along, you fools! (laughs) Reign of terror is merely a cover to perpetuate this evil. People are entirely free to disagree with the book. They're entirely free to find the way I write the book obnoxious, all of that. I have no problem with that. The book takes very strident positions and expresses them stridently. People are going to get their feelings hurt. And particularly if they are in a foreign policy establishment that at every turn 
justified the war on terror, which is a necessary condition for perpetuating the war on terror, they're going to get their feelings hurt. I think that it is quite a choice to read stories like those of Fahim Qureshi, who was a 13-year-old who survived Obama's first drone strike and was maimed in a manner that caused his life to change that day, and think the problem is my tone. That's quite a choice. The same thing with people like Adam Hassoun, someone who the war on terror, and in particular the Patriot Act, criminalized after 9-11, sought to turn into an informant, prosecuted him when he refused to become an informant, had him in federal prison for the better part of 15 years before imprisoning him yet again after he completed his sentence, placed in an immigration detention facility where he very likely contracted COVID and decide that the problem is my tone. That's a choice people can make. I would ask them to reflect for a minute on whether that choice is the thing that helps perpetuate the war on terror amongst elites. Because I don't really get a sense from the non-media and non-blob people who I encounter who've read this book that there is remotely a problem with my tone. Typically, I get some measure of, not to toot my own horn, but some measure of gratitude might not be the right word, but like an appreciation that I attempt to describe the war without euphemism, without candy coating all the aspects of the horror and the repression that the war on terror continues to inflict on people. And the reason for that, I typically get told, is because figures in the mainstream media have not, over the past 20 years, expressed the war on terror in a manner resembling its reality. Every time I turn on the TV or open up the op-ed pages of a major paper or publication over the past four or five years, and they want to talk about, just use one example, Donald Trump's raging anti-Muslim rhetoric, messaging, or policies. There's this inevitable turn to saying, well, oh my God, George W. Bush, that era Republican never did that. And it makes me wonder, were so many of these guys in a coma during the eight years of George W. Bush? They frequently trot out the talking point of, oh, he visited that mosque shortly after 9-11. Okay, so he did one PR gambit, and that is enough for you to sugarcoat that between the Bush administration and the Trump administration, I think this is something you would agree with, given the thesis of your book, that there is a straight line between those two eras and administration, whatever differences there are around the edges or nuances. And tell me if you disagree with me on this. The straight line that I see, the main sinew, the main threat connecting tissue, for me has been the leaders picking up on a very widespread American bloodlust and giving promises to quench it in various ways. I want to disagree somewhat on that. And I think it's a productive disagreement. Jesse, can you kill his mic, please? (laughs) Swin, you're right in the main. The difference between those two eras, which is to say the actual bridge connecting them, is one that the greatest Marxist historian, certainly of the Western world, Eric Haubsbaum, described as the line of respectability. 
that the constituency George W. Bush represented was highly respectable and therefore less vulgar, considered less barbaric than the one that Trump represented. But in fact, it's George W. Bush who, after 9-11, whatever he wants to say about it not being a war on Islam, and he will amend that in 2005 when his political fortunes begin to, to tank, he built every opportunity and apparatus and justification that those seeking to prosecute a war on Islam would have there would require and would put to use. The area of disagreement is on September 14th, 2001, I went to the collection point near Penn Station, where it was the first time I was able to get back into New York since the attacks from where I was in New Brunswick, New Jersey at Rutgers University. And everyone standing by that collection point, like searching for for just being told what to do, how we could help, was there in a spirit of immense solidarity. And I was taught, I was, I'm writing something right before we, we dialed into this. So I was kind of channel, channeling that moment. But like people were talking about having driven all night, having driven, you know, multiple nights from the South, from the Midwest, and from New England, because they felt compelled to help New Yorkers. They felt compelled to, to help their, their, you know, fellow Americans. And that's real. And I think what happened instead was not something that was a bloodlust bubbling up from the American people. It was a manipulated sentiment by American elites, particularly in and around the Bush administration, but hardly limited to them, expressed all throughout with a unanimity across mainstream media that encouraged people to tap into a bloodlust, encouraged them to understand 9-11 as not just a national, but a civilizational affront. And they should understand the necessity of violence directed not only abroad, but at home as available to them and as an opportunity for them. And that, I think, is a more organic exploration of how it was that this brutality came unleashed. This is not something that the Bush administration was compelled to do. This was a choice the Bush administration made that it justified for the pursuit of its own power that required inciting a bloodlust, that in, that required channeling that bloodlust once incited into a manner that, as Karl Rove expressly said, we can take to the country to win election after election. And you've obviously been covering this for decades at this point, but for the purposes of this but yeah, yeah, exactly. You'll be covering it for probably decades more, unfortunately. What was the precise moment when you came up with the second half of the thesis of that is on your book cover, the produced Trump part? And to be more specific, I, that's more in line with producing Trumpism and what became the Trump candidacy in 2016 and the Trump presidency. What were you doing? What were you reporting on? What did you hear or see that specifically threw off a trigger in your mind saying, that everything I have been reporting on for the past two decades as a national security reporter has brought us to this moment in 2015, 2016, 2017, whenever it was. It was sort of two moments that together kind of locked the thesis in for me and realized that I had been kind of reporting this book in real time for the past 20 years. The first was ahead of the 2018 election, 
when you'll remember Trump tries to incite a national panic over a migrant caravan. A bunch of people, including a bunch of Jews, end up getting killed during that hysteria. But yes, yes. Yes. And we're getting there. Yes, that is an inciting event for the worst single act of anti-Semitic violence in American history, the murders at the Tree of Life synagogue. As Trump is inciting this hysteria, he starts describing, he and Mike Pence, that the caravan contains Middle Easterners, that they feel that clearly they might not work the alchemy well enough by sheer fact of a migrant caravan, a caravan we have to always remember that's downstream of foreign policy destabilization decisions the United States has made from the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s stemming from the Central American dirty wars. So in many ways, these are refugees America creates. And this is how they respond once those refugees are created. Now they feel that it's not scary enough unless they bring up the specter of what they call radical Islamic terror. And then after that, and of course, as soon as they lose the election, they completely forget about this fear. It's entirely manufactured, but gave license to, I believe it was Customs and Border Patrol forces, Border Protection Forces, to fire on with non-lethal rounds on the migrant caravan. The second was I had been doing a story for the Daily Beast, I think it was around Thanksgiving, so just a couple of weeks later, that found with statistics and like kind of lying in plain sight that hadn't been picked up on that Obama's first two years of drone strikes, which is the most intense period of drone strikes in his presidency, had by October of 2018 already been substantially eclipsed by Trump's drone strikes. And this was all the while Trump had been posturing as an opponent of the war on terror. And so between those two phenomena, the accelerated civilizational contempt matched with the intensification of the war on terror in operations as well as in culture, together kind of locked in for me that there had been like lots of really important particularly historically rooted explanations for Trump's rise to power, but all of them had neglected something important. And I wanted to write about what that important aspect was, how basically we have been at war for so long, inciting so much nativism and so much violence that it's been functionally background noise. And we notice it pretty much like we notice at best the weather. Why do you think, and this is something I've wondered for years, I'm sure there are any number of plausible explanations for this. It's probably a result of the combination of some of them. During the Obama presidency, the civilian casualties and the mayhem caused and the legal controversies and scandals surrounding his drone wars was such a gigantic facet of the reporting around eight years of Barack Obama in the White House within the mainstream press and commentariat. It was also a huge function in popular culture. There were movies made about it or sort of about it. Like one of the Marvel Captain America movies, I was told by the directors, was explicitly about Obama's terrorist kill list that he used for his drone warfare. Why do you think during the Trump era, when he took so many of the patina of guardrails off of accountability, quote unquote, for drone warfare that the Obama administration had kind of put on it and just dramatically upped the amount of carnage and civilian casualties with the drone wars. You you tell me if you remember the four years of Donald Trump in the White House differently than I do. I don't remember it being that big of an item on the agenda list for the media to cover. No, you're absolutely why, right. That, why that, was that? Do you think? I think this, this wasn't a problem. I think it reflects 
a far deeper problem in coverage of Trump, which is that you have to remember that Trump's entire career has been about manipulating reality and doing that through knowing in a sophisticated way how to manipulate the media through how to manipulate specific journalists. And to simultaneously understand the business of media well enough to know what can and can't be done in that regard. Trump succeeds when he sets the narrative for himself. And this was not, in terms of tracking the acceleration of the war on terror, a problem of data, however much Trump made the war on terror all the more opaque. Enough of this was in plain sight that all I was able to do it, fellas. So there's no reason others shouldn't have been able to do it. But the problem was that they believed, having seen Trump establish it so much, that he had said he was an opponent of the war on terror and was indeed a factional opponent of many of the important figures behind the war on terror and the constituencies within the military and the intelligence services for the war on terror, that that substituted. And of course, when he's not escalating the wars, he's trying to withdraw ground forces, even at times deceitfully, as he did in Syria around Christmas of 2018, promised that the war was in fact already over and they were coming home until he acquiesces and, and doesn't do any of that. And so Trump ultimately created a durable enough narrative amongst people who, you know, when there is a Republican in office, at least, see it as their job to puncture the narratives of that Republican in the White House. And having seen Trump in such a appropriately ugly and negative fashion, and having treated the war on terror as not a pleasant thing, certainly, not a pretty thing, certainly, but ultimately part of what it is to take, what it is to use American power responsibly, however regretfully. And they were never able to reconcile those two things. And as the aphorism has it, when the facts don't fit the narratives, you know, too bad for the facts. The tell, I think, for this narrative really comes when in 2018, Gina Haspel, a straight up torturer at the CIA, and before anyone gets on me, I don't consider someone who ran a black site while torture was happening there to be any less of a torturer than the person who pours the water on the on the guy on the waterboard. The CIA Public Relations Office would like us to reemphasize that she does love Johnny Cash, though. Exactly. <laughs> and like, I was fighting with the CIA on this. Like an actual torturer becomes CIA director. And basically the hashtag resistance, the elements of it that come from the security services, call a giant timeout in their campaign against Trump and applaud him and endorse Haspel because she's one of them. And she represents, you know, the valiant people at the CIA and so on and so forth, who, who Mr. Trump is being so mean to. And that was not really treated as the enormous tension within the anti-Trump coalition, let alone tracing the alignments there between Trump, the security state and the hashtag resistance. And like once I had my idea for the book, I instantly knew like how I had my, my kind of last two chapters.
So Spencer, I, you know, I think there's there's what we've come to think of as sort of reign of terror moments where something appears in the news that reminds us in, in the way that you posit in the book that the war on terror brought us the Trump era and everything that's come after it. I mean, I think of uh, obviously Trump's embrace of Eddie Gallagher, all the veterans and members of the military at January 6th, stuff like that. I mean, what are some of those anecdotes that, that you think are particularly sort of piquant in terms of, uh, of illustrating that? Well, this I don't know how piquant this is, but it's really usually I think of these in terms of like real, you know, scary harbingers. No one has done better reporting on QAnon than you have, Will. And among the things that I think like really stands out about QAnon is its relationship to Guantanamo Bay and how it is openly fantasizing about sending its political opponents to Guantanamo Bay. That's QAnon today. It's going to be the Republican Party on Capitol Hill in however many years. One of, I think, the, the most absolutely like fascinating figures of the war on terror, someone who in many ways kind of reflects its id, is the founder of, in the 1990s, the CIA's Osama bin Laden unit known as Alex Station, who also doubles as the head of the renditions group, which is the entity within the CIA before 9-11 that snatches people off the streets or has them snatched off the streets and then delivered to their countries of origin for quote unquote justice, which really means torture. That guy who quickly sees after 9-11, the response taking place as being one that will incite greater jihadist violence because it's disconnected from America's imperial actions in the Middle East, in particular the Arab world, that the appetite for bin Ladenism, he becomes marginalized and increasingly embittered, drifts to the far right very quickly. It's not a far drift. I remember interviewing at the time. This guy is named Michael Scheuer. And by, I did a piece on this for the Daily Beast on Mike, by the time Trump takes office, he is openly blogging about how like all of the Democratic Party and the media are traitors. He is very quick to use anti-Semitic language, similarly quick to use racist language, apologize for the Confederacy, talk about how like there is a need for you know Trump to use the military and those who will do violence on his behalf in order to not have power stolen from him. So that's an important person who emerges from the war on terror. And the same thing with like the constant presence of people who owe their public careers to the war on terror, who are Trump's validators, who people like Mike Flynn, who emerges from the war on terror with the critique that the problem is Islam. And also that this is someone who like runs multiple intelligence shops and ultimately an intelligence agency who feels that he somehow is not the deep state, but is a victim of the deep state because the deep state won't allow him to like align with the Russian SVR and won't allow him to openly express that like the problem here is Islam. And people like Eric Pritz, who is probably the premier, certainly not by volume, so many more defense companies make so much more money than off the war on terror than Prince does. But Prince represents this turn toward not just the privatization of violence, which is one of the oldest professions in human history, but a willingness that like once his violent operations become something of a pariah, that he'll sell them to foreign powers and he will lose absolutely no place within the Trumpist coalition, despite like him using Frontier Services Group to like work for the Chinese on One Belt, One Road. There are so many ways in which Eric Prince and Donald Trump just sound 
and act to me like the exact same guy. They were just so similar in so many ways. I remember attending this private event, I think it was back in 2014, when he was talking about ISIS and how pissed off he was that Republicans kept getting their asses kicked by Democrats, at least in his fevered interpretation in mind. And it just reminded me exactly like the Trump rallies that you would see a year or two years right after that. One of my favorite Prince moments during the Trump era is he writes this Wall Street Journal op-ed trying to convince Trump to basically like privatize the Afghanistan war and give it to him. Like, And someone who clearly has not really read the history of the British East India Company, particularly the history of the... Anyway, he writes that in the language of civil, he writes about Afghanistan in the language of civilizational retribution. He says in this one moment that like, this is a job for people from nations with good rugby teams. Doesn't America have a shit rugby team? <laughs> well, I mean, what he's really talking about there are like the people who built and maintained apartheid. <laughs> so like the people who sold their services on the open market um, to the forces of reaction and repression after there was no more Rhodesia for them to fight for. Right. And just to look forward a little bit to the current Biden era that we're in. People online, on the news, have been, over the past week or two, pretty frequently citing recent public opinion polls that have come out, showing that basically, at least for now, no matter how you phrase the question, poll after poll of Republicans, Democrats, and Independents keep showing that the American people are just overwhelmingly done with at least the big hood ornaments of the war on terror. They they may not give a shit about drone warfare that kills scores of civilians overseas in countries they've never heard of till the end of time, but when it comes to things like ground troops in Afghanistan or Iraq, the American people are just done. And there has been a bit of a cross-partisan consensus that has formed at that, but to me at least, and you tell me if you feel the same way, it feels a little bit malleable. Like, we're just one more demagogue, one more big terrorist attack, or one more gigantic news cycle, maybe five or ten years from now, for a replay of the Bush-era bloodlust that we were talking about before. Do you, based on your reporting and what you're seeing now during the Biden era, both in policy, polling, whatever, are you reassured at all? Or is this mainly a reorganization of affairs as currently stated? So first, the polls reflect a pretty consistent pattern in American history since the war on terror, which is that the wars themselves are not popular. After the initial manufactured jingoism, the popularity of the wars falls off really sharply once the realities of those wars set in. And the same is true for, for the surges as well. There's a reason, like Donald Trump, when he uses all of this anti-war rhetoric, is picking up on something real. Like, And the same thing when you know Obama in 2008 marshals all of this anti-war rhetoric. It's very real. And it is noticeable you know, that in 2016, Hillary Clinton does not. It really underscores a related point, which is that the ground wars can recede, but that leaves a tremendous amount of the war on terror still intact. And if that war can operate inconspicuously, it is very, as I put it in the book, sustainable um, from an operational perspective. It can continue. This is how a war like Somalia, which Trump escalates like no one before him, is currently old enough to have a quinceanera. And there is not a single congressional study of the Somalia war. This is a 15-year fucking war. That is how inconspicuous 
the war on terror can become. And so that, I think, is kind of the, the real moment of crossroads where we look at what the Biden administration is leaving intact even as it very admirably, from my perspective, withdraws from Afghanistan. Um, I have my criticisms of how this withdrawal was conducted. Primarily, I have my criticisms about how, once again, in American history, the United States and Biden in particular blamed Afghans for the war America brought to them and did nothing at all for those Afghans who did not serve Western interests during the war. It is entirely appropriate that Biden and the military should have made this effort at getting, I think it's something like 120 odd thousand people out, but they prioritized Westerners. They prioritized those who worked for and with Westerners and to the rest of Afghanistan, which had to suffer all of this time. There is nothing. There is certainly no discussion of refugee admission except for the right to demonize and the liberals not to challenge. And there is no discussion of paying the Afghan people the reparations that I believe they are due from the United States for what the United States did to their country, did to their country not only during the 20 years of the Afghanistan war, but in the 1980s, when it, along with Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, did their part to destabilize Afghanistan as the Soviet Union was obviously destabilizing Afghanistan through its invasion and occupation. I could talk to you about this all day. I'm sort of pissed off that we're out of time. I did not even get to ask you about the TV show 24. Oh, man. We could have spent maybe an entire episode on that. But you wanted to get me to react to the New York Times book review, didn't you? <laughs> Spencer, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. Also deeply infuriating. Godspeed on the book tour. We'll have you back soon. And now let's move on to the segment that we lovingly title fresh hell, in which we introduce our audience to something batshit that's going on in the world today that they might not believe is happening, but is very much indeed occurring. Will, how do you feel about being back for your first fresh hell and what feels like, I don't know, a four-year absentia from this podcast? It's good. It's good. I get to be wicked. Fresh Hell. This is a segment I'm calling International Linwoods of the World. I think this should be an interesting trip to Fresh Hell for the listeners. Okay, so in this segment, we are revisiting the latest ongoings of Comrade Powell and Comrade Linwood. Tell us what is going on in their expanded Marvel universe of MAGA kukuri. Yeah, so Linwood, you know him, you love him. He's the pro-Trump lawyer who uh, is now facing disbarment in Georgia, who is recently got owned by a federal judge for his role in election fraud lawsuits. But anyways, Linwood, he's an interesting guy. He's kind of been a, a little, going off on his own a little bit. He's going after Marjorie Taylor Greene. He says she's not, she's insufficiently MAGA, insufficiently interested in voter integrity. <laughs> He's kind of doing his own thing. So his latest thing, which he has support from Sidney Powell, another pro-Trump lawyer, and a couple other characters as well. They're planning, they're not calling it a general strike, but it's basically a general strike starting on Saturday, 9-11. Linwood has this idea that basically Trump supporters should withdraw from society starting on Saturday as a protest over election fraud and generally kind of like the dismal state of the world. So I'm certainly watching closely to see how many people get into this. But so far, the only participating businesses appear to be I would have guessed 
if you asked me initially before I'd heard anything about this, there would just be boat dealership owners. But apparently it's a handful of realtors. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty believable, right? Like car dealerships, maybe realtors. Right. So so he says, he says, withdraw your money from regular society. This is we're choosing the Benedict option. You know, we're leaving society with the exception of pro-Trump businesses. Now, depending on what state you're in, I'm sure there's plenty of pro-Trump businesses to choose from. But I was looking at his list and it's like a couple like realtors. And so, you know, unless you're buying land, which obviously I guess would probably be part of your withdrawal from society. Lynn's other tips include sell your stocks and go to cash. Presumably these people would have a lot of money on them. Drive slowly and carefully. Now he, he doesn't exactly say this. I guess it's partially you don't want to get arrested, but also like to conserve gasoline. And so consider not driving at all except to attend pro-Trump rallies. So you can imagine these kind of slow cars filled with money <laughs> kind of circulating around. And then, you know, he also encourages people to be, to clearly go on strike here. He says walk off the job even under the threat of being fired. So this is it's always interesting when these ideas get off of telegram and they, they try to enact them in the real world i think one i'm always obsessed with is the idea that truckers will blockade washington dc and bring the nation to a standstill and you know the, the million trucker march we're gonna besiege washington and these things never come to pass and so you know again i i, I think linwood here is maybe a little ahead of over his skis here but on the other hand maybe it'll happen i mean i do think this is part of a larger effort to build a sort of maga counter society outside of our normal world this maybe is another brick in the road to achieving like a sort of MAGA velvet underground. Like maybe this doesn't make a huge impact <laughs> right now, but it will inspire at least a dozen people to start their own MAGA efforts that become big hits later. Yeah, not everyone sold their stocks, but everyone who who drove slowly that day uh, went on to start an insurrection of their own. <laughs> I think that's right. I mean, this whole effort to sort of patronize specifically pro-Trump businesses, it recalls me. I mean, this is going on years and years and years. I have an app on my phone that I've had for, I think, maybe going back to the Obama administration called Second Vote. And the idea is your first vote, obviously, is at the ballot, but your second vote is how you spend your money. And so I, I think it's a barcode scanner uh, where you can see if I'm at Costco, if I'm going to buy toilet paper, a little scan to see if that company is a pro-Trump company. And if not, I can say, no, no, and move on down the aisle. These things haven't caught on super hardcore, but I do think this Linwood idea, I, I'm intrigued by it, to be honest. I think it's one to watch. I also will say a general strike on Saturday doesn't seem super effective <laughs> to me, but I, I guess we'll see. But the gimmick here is they had to do it on 9-11. Right, exactly. And I will say it's supposed to be ongoing. So theoretically, we could be talking two two months from now and we could say Linwood and his ilk have withdrawn from society. Society has collapsed. No one is filing defamation lawsuits. No one is demanding to inspect voting machines. We could be in really dire straits here. So have... Lynn Wood or Sidney Powell or any of them propose what these people would do for money if they participated in this general strike? I think the idea is you maybe you're, you're allowed to work for a pro-Trump business, perhaps. And, you know, th this gets into sort of something you see a lot with these vaccine mandates is people tweet like, if you're fired from your job for not getting the vaccine, I'll get you a job. Just let me know. And it gets like 10,000 retweets. But it's like, OK, this Twitter guy got me a job. It's uh, across the country. <laughs> you know? OK, I think this is part of a larger, um, you know, a MAGA network that's growing. The other thing I will say is everything points to September 11th in terms of this general strike passing without notice, but it's on to the next thing. I don't think these guys will be particularly broken up when nothing happens here. And then, you know, you can always just kind of gin people up for the next event.
On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.